welcome back to Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast with your hosts, Dr. James and Dr. Dante, continuing on that wonderful, engaging healthcare discussion. We've talked about the history and the current status of the American sick care system because we, we've established it's not truly a healthcare system, but we have to figure out how to change the system so it can be truly a healthcare system. Now, you all know that we're a couple of osteopaths. We've well established that. And in some of our episodes, we talked about some of the things that Dr. Still and others did early on, especially especially Dr. Still and, and the sanitarium movement from the early 1900s. I think it's interesting that we've gotten away from that, that model where you just if you want to heal the patient, just bring them inside, hang on to them for six months, feed them good, exercise them good, and then set them free. We, we, you know, we have some wellness clinics out there and medical spas and whatnot, but it's just, it's not the same. So the, the, the question we are going to deliberate on, we're going theoretical today, is what in the heck do we do different? And should we do things different? So I guess before getting too deep in that, let's, I guess we'll set some context and ground rules since this essentially amounts to a weird theater of mind game between the two of us now, right? Exactly. Um, so think for, I guess, important things. We are actively trying to play with what it would mean to make a new system. At the same time, this is actually not to denigrate or otherwise put down the current system. For all the things I genuinely don't like about it, I actually had two college students uh, shadowing as in following me around today, and I kind of laid in about all the ways the system is broken because it is quite bad. There are things it is genuinely good at. For example, um, I think that our current system trying to provide health care is a problem, but our current system is excellent at delivering sick care. Right, it, like, it does. It it saves lives, and, and when we we talk about the system, if we if we talk about the system as though it's broken, that assumes that it was working well at some point, and so maybe maybe we need to reframe this discussion into a system that's not working well for everyone, and how would that system look if it were what what does it mean to be working well for everyone what, what would the goals be now we we face some uphill battles in this whole discussion uh, i recently listened to a podcast on the fintech podcast which i highly recommend that podcast if you want to hear more about uh, financial discussions but they talk about they they talked about healthcare in the industry and that there is a mismatch of incentives between providers, aka physicians, payers, which are the insurance companies, uh, and um, uh, the, the the insurance companies, the providers, uh, and uh, uh, the patients. <laughs> Drawing a blank on the third P, which there you go. is the most important P of that group, because so, insurance companies, sure. providers, those providers, payers, patients, and patients. And for those who aren't as familiar with the lingo, payers is our category that we use to describe the insurance companies. They're, they're also referred to as payers because at a technical level, 
they're the ones who quote unquote pay for our services. Well, and I, I joke <laughs> that uh, it's the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules, as you know from Aladdin. We got a <laughs> Disney reference in there for you. Uh, Took us all of what? It's been five minutes, not even? <laughs> not not very long. All right, all right. So we got still but, on Aladdin. Yeah, still on Aladdin, all in, all in almost the same breath. But yes, the but three payers piece, three have, piece. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> the payers have a, an ethical obligation to their shareholders. Their whole model is to produce income and profit for their shareholders. So from a business standpoint, it makes sense for them to enact policies that will pay as little as possible so that, so that income can be returned as an investment in return to the pockets of the shareholders and, and the company. And so that's, that's understandable. Whereas patients, their goals vary from person to person. For, for one person, it's to lose weight. Another person is to control their blood pressure. Uh, you hope that their goal overall is to improve quality of their lives, but it may not be. And then finally with providers, and I hate the term providers, I like physicians, but we have to look at the, the landscape now with mid-level and other clinical clinical uh, professionals. Providers is probably the most accurate term as a whole to dis for this discussion. Their goal is to provide appropriate care at the appropriate time. And I, I, although I do spend time teaching our residents about the costs that they're incurring, my, my impression is that with most providers, their, their goal is to provide quality outcomes for their patients, and they could not care less about what that would cost an insurance company to get there, which then drives us into prior authorizations and all sorts of uh, interesting conversations there. But so let's let's lay that out real quick just to make sure. We have team, I guess, camp one, that's the patient whose general uh, disposition is to seek whatever level of care is congruent with their non-medical goals right being right. as healthy as necessary as necessary to move on and do whatever it is they're about we have the physician or the provider uh, camp whose job is to administer what services are deemed uh clinically appropriate somewhat agnostic as the cost at least for the sake of this model right exactly to the patient and then you have the payer who almost arbitrates between the physician and the patient such that they're trying to, in some capacity, technically, match the provider's clinical desires for the lowest cost feasible. But in practice, what ends up happening is lowest cost feasible amounts to do as little as possible to maximize profits for the shareholders. And we end up with the conflict of these three parties kind of vying collectively for the sake of a shared pool of phenomena. Is that correct? Correct. And, okay. and with that that conversation, it it often gets confusing, even for us who are providers, because and uh, I, I I admit I whine a bit uh, a lot sometimes with my residents and, and our students, and saying, "Hey, does this company not realize that if if they get the better treatment now, 
in the long term, that may actually reduce the costs. But uh, I recently had this experience with uh, someone that failed a bunch of treatments. So we said, let's try this new thing. And the insurance company said, well, no, you can't try this new thing yet. You have to prove that you've tried everything else. And my initial response was, well, wait a second. This is the best thing out there. It's the newest thing. It's modern. It's, it's great. Or I, I could do OMT on this patient on a regular basis, and which would be less expensive. Would you want me to do OMT every week? Until I looked at the cost of the treatment. One month of this treatment, over $3,000. So what OMT is- would actually be, even if I did it on a weekly basis on this patient, which it is indicated, would be significantly cheaper. So I, I had to step back and say, okay, I can understand why the insurance company who's paying for this, this patient to receive treatment would say, hey, now, wait a second. Is $3,000 a month really indicated? Are you sure you've tried everything else? Because when they would go back to their shareholder and they say, well, yeah, we're paying out three grand for this. We're paying out 10 grand for this. That's what I'm sorry. We don't have so much of a dividend for you this quarter. Uh, the shareholders are going to go, well, wait a second. If you can't provide value to me as a shareholder, why am I going to give you money? I'm not right. going to and, invest in you anymore. And now we have the conflict between two completely um, at until, until this point unrelated goals. The the kind of assumption within medical work, clinical work, is that the mission is provide clinical outcome, right? Um, if sick, then fix. However, in the um, business environment, appropriately, again, for the way that these institutions are set up, you're not necessarily concerned with the product per se. You're concerned with the profit officially. So if you have a dope product, but the, uh, I say, if the, business model is self-defeating, then it is fiscally irresponsible, right? You are doing a disservice in that goal set. So if you're playing the money game, which is a very fair game, right? Money isn't necessarily good or bad. It's another thing, just like everything else we have. Right. If we're playing the money game, you might have the dopest outcomes in the world at the cost of somebody else's bank account, which again, that that's a genuine conflict between two systems. So let, let's let's play with all that. The game we want to do today, and the reason I wanted to kind of lay all that out is because there's a context for why we want to play the what would be better game. It's It has to be kind of built off of the what is currently there and why game, right? So mm-hmm. um, once upon a time, AT still, <laughs> got to go back to that now. Yep. There's this idea that any old doc can figure out what is sick. But it takes true skill and um, you know, and effort and work to find health. And it's been a very interesting. How many years have we been in this game journey, trying to articulate the word, the phrasing, find health, in a way that isn't either a cliche, lip service, or outright false, right? Um, As we would say, quackery, right? Right, right. We had that podcast with the two other guys where we had this whole basically tirade the four of us together about how you know osteopathy's claim to fame is essentially holistic medicine but that word doesn't belong to us anymore and we need to get get over it and move on right it's what does it mean to find health in an environment where we have all of this tech 
and resources and knowledge as opposed to you know chicken livers and mercury um and what does health actually mean does it mean oh i can get out of the bed in the morning or can i lift 300 pounds for the deadlift can i do my regular job without killing myself i mean what what is health that by itself is a nebulous difficult to define uh, idea i think that complicates I guess that's the first level of this game then, right? Right. So perhaps at least between you and I, we can come to a... Now, to be fair, this game is stacked. I've known this guy for how long now and vice versa. But for the sake of setting the the rules of engagement, perhaps we need to come to a working definition on camera of what we'll call health so that we can talk about what we're pursuing in a way that is objectifiable as opposed to purely abstract. Absolutely. You first. And that that makes complete sense because if if we are truly going to develop a healthcare system, then we have to know what health is. And then on the second side or the back side of that is we have to know what care would look like. Because going back to this example that I shared, yes, there is the provider conflict with the payer, but there's also conflict with the patient. The patient's like, Hey, you know, I've been dealing with this for a while now. Can you can you figure something out for me? Both of you, can you just stop arguing and get treating? Because that's what I'm coming for. But the shareholders then are saying, look, if you can't provide us value, we're going elsewhere. And if you go, if they go elsewhere, where does the insurance company go? If the insurance company goes away. And if the insurance company goes away, then that patient's not in my clinic anymore because right. they, they can't pay for things. So it yeah. definitely is a complicated uh, mess. If right, you will. and we, we could phrase that two ways. We can go down pathway one and say, the healthcare system is a Kafka-esque evil. That is a very reasonable read of the scenario actually, right? The machine is mm-hmm. inherently terrible, tear it down, build a new one. Or in a less um, overtly negative sense, we can also frame it as, the system is way more complicated than any one agent is willing to comprehend in isolation. And these barriers end up needing to be respected. Perhaps the reason why the system is so Kafkaesque is because it has to be, perhaps. Um, before we reject the premise outright, you know what I mean? Let's let's play within the game. And if we get to the point where we find that there is no solvable state, right? Let's pretend within the rules of engagement, there is no way to solve for this game. Maybe that is our technical proof of the system is down, not to quote, you know, strong bad. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> there you go. The system is down. The system so, is down. For all the times that song comes up in this house, that in Trogdor. But yes, we can burn <laughs> the entire healthcare system and burn all the people, but that would probably be a bad business model. So let's try this. Uh, James. Would you like to volunteer your first idea as to what health is? And then you and I just kind of bounce back and forth until we find something we agree with so that we can agree that that's the thing we're building a system around. Okay. So I would say health is not the absence of disease per se. Okay. But the um, maximizing of your, your internal physiologic systems that maintain allostasis, the the state of being balanced. 
such that when the next uh, injury or the next uh, uh, dysfunction that shows up, whether it be from infection or, or trauma, whatever that may be, uh, the allostasis is such that it bounces back quickly from whatever um, uh, injury may occur to the system. So I guess for me, the health would be the ability to maintain allostasis through any number of environmental changes. Okay. I like that. I understood that. Um Explain it to me like I'm not me and one of our listeners. What the <laughs> heck is allostasis, man? Like, dope. So I got you. you may, but what you may have you may have heard the term <laughs> homeostasis, which is yes. in, uh, in a much uh, more common inadequate, more, much more common use, but inadequate for the description of our body. So, for example, we talk about um, what our our body does with sugar when we eat it. And the whole purpose of uh, insulin, amongst other things, is to regulate how our body responds to a sugar load. And you could say that there is a, a very damaging effect for sugar consumption. So if you have a single load, you've just, you've just had your first shake from a local shop in months. So you're not used to loading yourself with sugar your body will spit out insulin, among other things, in order to maintain balance so you don't overload yourself. Uh, and so a healthy person can uh, take that attack, that injury, deal with it in a, in a positive way, get the sugars uh, out of the system or used in, uh, put into storage, used for fuel or other things without much of uh, a ding to your overall health versus someone who is uh, normally consuming way too many carbohydrates and now that regulatory system has been uh, set off balance. Now there's no more storage location in the liver for sugar. So now you've got to store it in fat and then the fat uh, leads to hormone imbalances and you develop long-term inflammation and all sorts of stuff, then your allostasis is no longer uh, possible because your your mechanisms for managing that, keeping everything back in balance are knocked off. So it's like you've got a, a, a wobbly stool and one of the legs has not just become loose it's actually broken off and so you you've turned a four-legged stool into a three-legged stool and you're trying to maintain balance just to make sure um, i'm mapping it correctly would kind of riffing off of what you stated would homeostasis be something like the state of maintaining some sort of uh whatever like the homeostasis would be the state of maintaining a thing whereas allostasis would be the state of maintaining that thing in response to perturbation is that yes Am I phrasing yes. that correctly? Yes. Any type of environmental insult. That That's the word I was trying to think about. Okay. Because that, that, yeah. that does something interesting then, because now if we take that as our working definition, or at least keep playing with that working definition, we have something like health is something like maintaining or otherwise improving one's capacity to 
handle the perturbations of the environment or something to that effect. Right. The, um, the ability to take an insult and keep on laughing. Let's play this game then. Because th this would say a lot about how both of us will end up framing this. Is health... Let's let's pretend health is a stat, like in a video game, that you can acquire. It's something you could level up or grow, right? Is we're we're going to buff our health. Exactly. Is health asymptotic in its growth? As in, like, does it eventually cap off and there's a maximum amount of health a body can achieve? Mm -hmm. Or is it a linear thing? Or is it some other graphical construct that we can play with? As in, is it theoretically possible? Let's pretend perfect resources and an infinite money, just for the sake of the concept. Is health something that we can, if work more and more resources grows indefinitely, as in can we live forever? Or is health something that peaks off at some arbitrary level, um, such that there's a point where there's no such thing as getting quote-unquote healthier, um, you've maxed out quote-unquote whatever you got? Do you frame it more as infinite growth or asymptotic? I would definitely say it's asymptotic with the okay. vast majority of our patients. Uh, um, it would be interesting if someone achieved linear growth or linear, but then again, as you approach a, an outer limit, there, there's only so much more you can go before the body is like, okay, I've, I've done. Um, you see weightlifters have certain limits that they can get to, and they just can't lift anymore because they're, they're physically not capable of building or putting any more muscle in place. That would it was allow actually them to go higher. I was going to say in the strength and conditioning in the bodybuilding environments, we actually have a term for that. It's a genetic potential, which mm -hmm. sounds about as eugenic as it actually is. Um, but there's <laughs> this idea that, in, in a less you know terrifying sense, for a given frame, like look at how thick my bones are relative to my height, there's a certain amount of mass I'm physically capable of putting on before mm -hmm. any more becomes actually one mechanically impossible without changing my underlying chemistry, hence testosterone supplementation and things of that nature, yeah. right? Like, I'm just gonna make up these numbers as a, this is me for a second, as a five foot four um, Pacific Islander male with a wrist circumference of 17 inches, um, I can put on, I'm just making this up, screw uh, it, uh, 30 more pounds of muscle before I've hit the limit of what people of my size and demographics seem to be able to put before hitting that asymptotic curve. Uh, asymptotic point versus if I was a different ethnicity, a different height, a different bone density, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, now, the interesting thing, uh, which may be relevant to this conversation is um, for the vast majority of individuals, they are so far away from their genetic potential that it is essentially linear. Um, this is where the fact that we're on a Zoom call might actually be really nice. Check this out. Hold on. Okay, cool. There's a graph, right? And we're using a word, by the way, that not everybody may know. Asymptotic. We, that's a calculus word. And yes. math makes some people's anuses pucker. So we should probably imagine a ceiling. Okay? Math. This is not for, yeah, this is, this is for the listeners, not necessarily for us. Imagine a ceiling. Okay? And mm -hmm. imagine a growth potential. Okay? My camera is now the ceiling. Like here, top. Okay. So what ends up happening <laughs> is as you get closer and closer to the ceiling. Look at the rate of growth here, right? Boom, like a little rocket ship. As you get closer to the top of your growth potential, notice how the rate starts to change and it starts to level off until eventually you're almost there, but you never quite touch it. 
yeah you never quite get to max and that could be determined by a combination of genetics and environment even and labor cost and all fairness and labor costs the ability can, can you work out two hours a right. day or do you have right. a whole load of kids and a spouse and you're limited as to what uh, what uh, workouts you can do right it's the hollywood effect right if i was paid to be this good looking hell yeah i'd do it because it's my day job <laughs> yeah. versus yeah. right if if that is an extra side gig basically to invest in myself at no benefit to anybody but myself how much am i willing to invest in it to do so right like um absolutely uh, a fun example of this just to line it out is a uh... okay so we're agreeing that it's asymptotic as in there's an upper bound technically yep um, unless we start getting into like cyberpunk turf, like um, meaningful uh, diversion. One of the ways to change this curve, right? So let's say, boom, you have your curve and you're asymptotic, but you want to tick it up again like that and keep it linear. One of the ways to do that factually is uh, um, to dope on testosterone, right? Right, right. However, that has consequences, like, you know, consequences. Like cardiac issues or cardiac um, issues, cases, uh, psychological issues, exactly. Um, uh, even other hormonal issues, voice changes, and and the like. Right. So, like, if we have a constrained value of health as your muscularity, no, we can actually keep it growing. But then all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, you are, you can grow more muscle, but now you need this medicine. How resilient are you? Should it, it gets more nuanced as you get that far, but. Interesting thing is, and this is a good example of that genetic potential idea. So based on an app that I'm using, right? Um, that whole AI digital coach thing that I'm playing with, mm -hmm. um, I'm somewhere between 67 and 70% of my genetic potential as far as muscularity. Kind of dope. I was like, cool oh, me. Yeah. Um, but the amount of labor to go from um, 70 to 71 or 70 to 72% is insane. The training is easy, right? 30, 40 minutes of kettlebell work of stuff that I, like my kettlebells are right there. If I move the, right out of frame, there's a stack of iron right there. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it's, it's accessible and it doesn't actually take a whole lot of time. And I do this for a kettlebell work. Yeah. However, the amount of protein I need to shove down my face, forget the fact that it's a lot of just actual time spent eating. It is fiscally demanding, right? If I have to put down, based on my mass and my training parameters, estimated protein intake for me is about 1.8 uh, grams per kg per day to sustain that level of growth. You can do mm -hmm. the math, blah, blah, blah. It ultimately ends up at, I need to put down about 150 to 200 grams of protein on most days. That's and a that's lot of protein. that's just annoying. <laughs> so, and that's why people use protein shakes right. rather than just eating a steak. Right. So I might actually, as an individual, cap out at about 70 to 75% of my potential because I don't think I want to go further. You, do you need to go further? Right. Like, do I really need that six pack? I don't know. But, <laughs> but there's this idea, right? Like I'm hitting that point where it's no longer linear growth. It's gotten to this thing. And I'm like, the amount of labor to go from here to here may not be that much, but to go from here to here might take double of what it did to get from here to here and all of a sudden it's like how long will it be before the amount of work to move the needle gets so much that it's no longer physically worth it to grow so uh, 
taking that idea that uh, the extra labor may or may not be worth it depending on the on the patient. So how do we make a system take that into account? Be, because okay. currently the Medicare, Medicaid, they're they're trying hard. They're they're really trying hard with their wellness visits and their requirements. They're they're doing the best they can uh, to encourage some kind of outcome. Although I don't know that it's all that well defined. So let's let's play with that. Based, forget about all of the statements, the press releases, the the, the stuff on the CMS page. CMS is the Center for Medicare Services. Just, let's go just off of what they're actually doing. They encourage annual for the 65 up population, which implies a certain thing. So for the geriatric population, elderly folks, they encourage yearly screenings of various types. If we broaden out the definition past Medicare and include the USPSTF, that's the US Preventive Task Force, right? Mm -hmm. Then we can extend that idea to the USPSTF, which de facto will be the government healthcare standard, just to keep it really simple for those who are not in the medical field. For those who are in it, that's obviously not the case, but just keep it simple for a second. There's this idea that if you are doing your job, at the very least, you are screening for and preventing these various phenomenon. If we go by that and what prevention means, let's categorize prevention into active versus passive. Like when I try to gain muscle, for example, that's active prevention of disease. We're assuming that by building up a reserve of tissue, God forbid something happens, my physiologic reserve can handle it. Allostasis, as you mentioned, yes? Exactly. By, by training out of frailty, you're building resilience into your system. Okay. So that that's that's we'll call that active prevention. Mm -hmm. The this other thing, which is not bad, I'm not going to denigrate that because it's actually a very good thing that functions almost as surveillance. It's more like a passive thing, right? It's we're not going to do anything to keep you from getting the thing. However, we're going to keep watch over you such that if you get the thing, we intend on catching it early enough such that it doesn't progress to a bad thing. For example, that tiny little fleck on your skin might be the beginning of melanoma. Let's chop it off now. Pretty valid. You know what I mean? Yeah, a, a very I, useful prevention technique. So let's play with that. For the record, there, there is no script for this episode, anybody listening. This is us actually playing with ideas, um, which means it's a weird format for a listener because they're hearing us actually brainstorm as if it's the pre-recording on the recording. <laughs> Now you so, get to see what we're thinking. Yeah, honestly. Okay, so let's play with that. If we're dealing with passive prevention, surveillance work, and that's what our system is built for and incentivized for based on the things we need to do to get paid, we can extrapolate that and go that the current medical care system, which is sick care, but grafted on a healthcare like plug-in, right? Mm -hmm. God, I'm using too much AI stuff. Anyway, um, it's it's kind of like a fruit salad tree where you've uh, grafted a bunch of different fruit <laughs> yeah, to yeah, one, yeah. one tree stock. And uh, there you go. Right. You get the idea. But based on that incentive structure and what tasks we actually need to perform, it is something like the current system is designed to catch you when you're minimally sick, to qualify for services, to prevent you from escalating in your level of sick. So it's almost like if we talk about that curvy linear thing, right? Boom, there it is. Mm -hmm right? 
It's almost like people live here. And if they were to slip down, our system is designed to catch them before they slip too far and keep them exactly. there. Exactly. As in our system's designed to not let you get worse if it works ideally, but it has no mechanism to help you get better. Well, and there's no there's no incentive, as we've been saying, but in reality, there's no reward for getting better. Right. When, when you know, to compare this to uh, auto insurance a little bit, there are rewards for being a good driver for some auto insurance companies, or uh, you, you keep your uh, uh, rates lower if you if you stay out of accidents and whatnot. Uh, for health insurance, there is no reward for not using services or not not double double negative there, uh, not not using services, but not needing services. So Correct. how would we how would we take the idea that you're building resilience, physical resilience, maintaining allostasis, thus, providing less strain to the system, how, how would you even build a, an incentive model that would work for I have all a terrifying three of idea, our participants? Yeah. What's that? I actually have a terrifying answer for that. Okay, let's go for it. Scare Jesus the audience. Christ. All right, we're going there. All right, so uh, preface, I read a lot of sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, last month, I read a book, really, really cool book called AI 2041. So. Let me talk a little bit about that. Now it's like a book club. We're back there again. Absolutely. We're doing it. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So um, this is directly relevant to this conversation because um, the way this book works is a technologist, that's the fancy word for techno-futurist, a uh, guy who likes to philosophize about technology, okay? Um, cool. Work together with a science fiction author um, whose name uh, is, I think, Chen Qifeng or something like that. I, got, I have his name right here because you guys might want to read this book. It's really good. Yeah, Chen uh, Chiofan. There's no, there's no tones on this one. A guy named Chen, um, and the author of the other part is Kai Fu Li. Okay, so these two authors get together, and they what the what happens is the technologist decides to play this game, kind of like what we're doing right now, of imagine the current state of AI. Fast forward twenty years. This was written in twenty twenty one to twenty forty one. Okay, here's all the things we expect AI to be capable of doing based on current projections in 2041. Science fiction guy, I'm going to give you a piece of tech. You're going to write a story that outlines the narrative of what this tech will do. So, for example, one of the stories was something like um, deep fake, which is essentially a technology where you can replace your face with anybody else's. Have fun with that. Technology has got that. That too, which is terrifying. It's that kind of episode. Thank God we're not monetized because damn. So <laughs> uh, in this short story, the deep fake technology has gotten so sophisticated such that all of the major governments like first world nations had developed legislation to protect themselves from deep fake. Great. However, the third world countries, in this case, Nigeria, have not developed those protections. So now the third world countries who are tech enabled because we're in that phase of time, but don't have the regulatory bodies are like dealing with the blowback of all this technology and no regulatory bodies. So what ends up happening is the author writes this really dope, like political intrigue thriller piece around this hacker 
who has to deal with deep fake tech at a very like nuanced level to navigate the plot. Cool. I'm not going to talk about the plot because that's the thing, but it's right. a short story. It was like two hours. And then the next story is about like in Japan, this guy made a virtual game out of an AI ghost, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So all that to say the very, very first story in 2041 might be an answer to this question in a not terrifying or terrifying way. So what they do is the, because of all the big data, smartwatches and biometrics and blah, 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 it's 2041. People have like wearables all over the place, right? Imagine like Fitbit, but it's integrated to your everything. There's this idea that the, your insurance is tied to your social media is tied to your, I guess, social identity, which is quantifiable via all this gadgetry. And based on your actual behaviors and habits and biometrics, your premiums that you pay for your health insurance change dynamically. It was a really cool idea that was obviously terrifying for reasons. And what ended up happening was something like um, this family had this son. So this family had pre-existing uh, risk for diabetes because of family history. And their right. son loves sweets. And then like the mom is kind of like, oh, honey, I got this great deal for this insurance provider because yay, hooray. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh no, our premiums are ridiculous because little boy, whatever his name is, can't stop eating Snickers. So they start like training the kid to stop eating Snickers and he gets healthier, good for him. But now the kid's like, but I like Snickers. It wasn't actually Snickers. It was some whatever, You get, but you get the idea. Some, some kind of candy bar or candy. Right. So like there was this behavior loop where because the poor behavior, that's how it's phrased here, was directly negatively impacting the, the financials of the family. Now they had direct financial incentive to actually get healthier in a very sincere way. The father in the story started driving like more safely, as you mentioned with auto insurance. Mm -hmm. The youngest character, the brother character, ended up like losing weight and becoming healthier because mom made him and he kind of like started to want to. The drama had to do with um, the, the POV character who, okay, all this incentive is great, but uh, it turns out the idea of what is considered safe and unsafe is not calibrated for human souls. So like, for example, if you hang with the wrong crowd, as in if you make the wrong friend in your social media account, that's a high risk behavior, man. They're, your premium goes up. So all of a sudden it started off as a health app and it started like infiltrating into like social engineering. And the story is told from the perspective of uh, Indian caste systems. Mm, okay. And it becomes this really, really cool um, navigation about um, the untouchables and the Brahmins. And the, there's a whole hierarchy in that one. But it ends up sure. being uh, told from the context of an AI system, incentivizing healthcare behavior, all of a sudden turning into uh, social injustice because they essentially magnify the institutional racism of a given culture. Hmm. And I'm like, this is terrifying. By the way, uh, what about those premiums? And if I have a... <laughs> And so, the, so, yeah, how did that look yeah. for the folks who were not paying premiums because they're government subsidized? Say again? How did that look for patients who were not paying premiums because they're government subsidized? Oh, got it. So this is an in, this this story takes place in an Indian healthcare system. Mm. So they didn't have a Medicare equivalent. Like it was a completely different set of assumptions. So, got it got it yeah, yeah yeah like that sentence doesn't register as a valid qu query almost because of the assumptions of the narrative um that being said they had an american version of the story but that was more to do with uh, job distributions and a bunch of civil mm -hmm. protests because turns out all the robots took our jobs get her done you know what i mean 
Well, that's that's been happening since at least the early 1980s. So that that's very realistic. <laughs> yeah. So the the UBI and like what to do with automation uh, with automation story mm -hmm. that went to the Americas. The healthcare story for this case went to to um to India because it made sense for the sake of this narrative. But there's this idea there. Let's take out the fact that it went rogue and did bad things about mm -hmm. uh, literal racism. But there is an idea there that what if we got rewarded for something like your FFMI, your, your fat-free muscle index, right? What if mm -hmm. the fact that my BMI is south of 30 was actually rewarded? Like, oh, wow, your BMI is south of a number. We should make you cheaper. Stuff like that. I don't know. It's an idea. Unfortunately, that's also tied to the presupposition that it's tied to insurance presupposition that insurance is even relevant for the conversation, right? It goes back to, is there a need for insurance or can the system be designed to not need insurance? Now, to say that is, is um, can be um, cause for consternation from the insurance companies, right? Because they're saying, well, if you don't need us, we're going to go out of business, we're going to lose jobs. And the insurance companies, the insurance business is a big business that would have a negative impact across the U.S. economy. So I don't know that we could actually say, let's get rid of the insurance companies, but how do we change the uh, the structures so that everyone benefits? I know there's a, a, a model out in California with the clinic, and uh, we haven't really talked about direct primary care that much, DPC. Uh, we, Which is surprising, considering what you and I both wanted to be before becoming university docs. For sure, for sure. <laughs> there is a, a clinic in California that allows, what they do is for their paying customers, paying customers pay a monthly fee to participate in, in the clinical care of this, at this clinic. But that fee covers the cost, not just for them, but for two other people who cannot afford the cost themselves. So they have become a self-funding uh, uh, charitable organization, charity clinic that, that is from the... what I understand thus far, has been able to maintain operations even in the expensive California setting. So that that is one idea people are using. The direct primary care model is, is a... Um, a less expensive, more affordable concierge type of model. And that uh, I know the DPC pro uh, proponents were, are going to cringe when I say that, but it does require a, a monthly fee uh, as well as out-of-pocket uh, costs for all patients. So that is one model to think about. I don't, I don't know if that's scalable per se. It works in that community. Um, right. I was going to say, if there's a critical level of abject poverty, then the model is not sustainable, right? So like right. if if there's some magic ratio, I say magic ratio, if there's some unknown ratio of uh, paid versus unpaid such that the paid population can reasonably cover the care for the unpaid within a small bubble, then it's self-sustaining. But if the financials of that community change such that there's a threshold of un, uh, of those who are unable to afford, now the system begins to break down and that matters because in a sufficiently affluent environment, that sounds amazing, actually. Hell yeah. But in an environment where the poverty is, uh, let's say, 
ubiquitous and inescapable. Let's call it a cyberpunk mm-hmm. dystopia because I just read Neuromancer. Then, um, <laughs> or maybe some inner cities that are currently dealing with stuff. Exactly. Like, I don't know if there'll be enough people who can pay into it to support such a thing. Hence why there's kind of a case for things like Medicaid, you know what I mean? And Medicare, because what do we do with the absolutely destitute or those who are unable to afford care in these settings, right? Absolutely. And the the question that comes to mind is, can we do, uh, oh, and, uh, can we do separate systems similar to the National Health Service in Great Britain, which has both private uh, medical systems and the nationalized health system? But do we see that that doesn't necessarily work any better in some ways than what we have in the states although you could argue that some countries that have instituted similar systems have better overall outcomes more uh, less uh, maternal fetal fatalities um, and longer lifespans in, in the u.s with fewer uh, other issues but the the question always comes to mind for me is are those outcomes due to the system, the medical care system, or are they due to environmental factors within the community itself? Quality of food, uh, less work hours, reduced stress, more vacation time, all of those kinds of things. Um, that actually brings up a punchline from a comedian. I can't remember his name. Uh, there was something to the effect of you Americans eat like you got, like y'all got free health care. <laughs> and I was like, "Solid burn, dude." <laughs> oh man, that's that's a, that's the truth, and that's Seriously, that's though. a that's a definitely an input we we've talked about in the past, but not in this context of, "Hey man, what are you eating? What are you consuming? What kind of stress are you dealing with? Uh, and is it because you're working?" Uh, 50 60 70 hours a week just to make ends meet and your job is not rewarding and you're not doing what you uh, dreamed about doing you're you're doing something that rewards someone else but not yourself all of those environmental stressors contribute to fragility versus resilience in our in our own health and it throws our allostasis off so let's roll it back a couple steps because I, I like the various threads we're, we're throwing out there and kind of reeling in. So let's build a let's build a parallel system just for the sake of the mind game mm-hmm. that is engineered to facilitate health. We're defining health as the ability to maximally navigate the insults and perturbations offered by the environment. That's both your food, your illness, your actual like environment in the macroscopic scale. And we're making the agreement that is something like, in order to maximally navigate the environment as such, you need two things. One is the lack of overt pathology, which the system's actually kind of built for, good for them. But on top of that, there's this missing component of building resilience into the body. So in the context of building resilience, the problem is, one, it's not incentivized. Two... I don't know any procedures or interventions medically that create resilience, right? Like I can give lisinopril to drop blood pressure 10 points, but I don't have a pill that can give me 
half a gram more muscle uh, per dose. Right. Right. So maybe we cover that idea. What would it look like on the intervention side, quote unquote, of this system, right? How, what would we be doing as clinicians for these people who are trying to build resilience into their health? No, I will, be, I will give a shout out to Blue Cross Blue Shield. Yeah. Shock. I'm going to give them a shout out. Uh, with some of their, uh, their uh, programs, they do offer um, discounts to local gyms. And if you go to a local gym that's on their list uh, a certain number of times a week, they do have a reward system. You can earn points and uh, those points uh, accumulate until you can get stuff from their catalog. Uh, it's, it's interesting. They limit how many points you can earn in any given year, but the catalog has some pretty cool stuff. So there is at least uh, that structure available through some insurance companies. I don't know how widely it's used. And I, I would love to see data that would indicate it is actually productive. Uh, I will say I've I've done a few things recording things to get points so I could get free stuff, which you know nothing is free, but it's stuff, uh, and it it did encourage me to uh, at least keep a little bit better track. So there is always that 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 uh, ability to earn free things by by choices you make. I mean that's. That, that, in essence, is a less terrifying version of what I just mentioned with the 2041 book, right? It's do the right thing, get a chunk off your premium, or do the right thing and earn a digital cookie. I don't know, whatever you're about. You know what I mean? For Here's me, a mug that the, says you're dope. For me, it was a hand blender. <laughs> hand, there you go. You know what I mean? But there, there might be something to that where goods and services may be rendered as a function of your effort. Um to grow such a thing. And then they set it up such that there's an actual feedback loop of, I have this payer who will incent, who will cover my risk, but in such a way that, oh, they, in order to reduce my risk further, because there's benefit in that, if I were to elect in such behaviors and do it in a way that is demonstrable, then I can pay out in such a way that I get an actual product for it. Whether that product is a actual physical item or a service, that's up for debate, right? I, I went with- right decrease premiums for the sake of the story I was telling, but it could be a mug or a, I don't know, what else do people care about? You know what I mean? A necktie. Ele yeah. Electronics. You can right. earn bicycles. You can earn all sorts of stuff. You can earn clothes, food. Yeah. All sorts of things. I was going to say that, but that there's an idea there because uh, one of my friends, actually close friend of mine growing up, he got a job working for a pharmaceutical company as uh, he, he got a gig, basically his first like real gig out of like education. Mm -hmm. And I, it was just a really cool conversation because it was kind of like, yeah, man, I got health insurance and now they cover all these gyms. And it's kind of like, yeah, this gym now is free and this used to cost me blah, blah, blah. And now that I have this, I'm going to hit the gym because I can afford it. And I'm like, good on you. Shit. Yeah, you do it, man. You do it. But it was, well, it was so hey. interesting to hear that. Because that is definitely an interesting perspective that, you know, you're already paying premiums. Now they're going to cover gym memberships. Uh, I, I will tell you that uh, I have sent many of my patients looking into their silver sneakers 
benefits from Medicare because it does cover the cost to some extent of gym memberships in participating gyms. So now there's an interesting construct happening here um, that we should bring to attention then. Um, watch this, everybody. If we if we start the game off the current sick care system, right? Let's take mm -hmm. point zero as a healthy individual of middle age, okay? In order to get them minimally not sick, a effective clinician or, health, or public health provider of some sort, primary care provider, will do all the necessary screening things. Do I have insert set of diseases? Answer equals no. Congratulations. But that is not the same as developing resilience. That's not the same as developing the capacity to actively prevent disease, right? I don't have right. disease yet, but is there anything I could do to not let it happen? Okay. So we're saying that we indulge, we incentivize people to engage in behaviors that would actively prevent multiple chronic diseases relevant to our population. We're kind of building in as an assumption here. It's obesity, diabetes, low back pain, technically cancer, et cetera, right? So Certainly. the proposed intervention, because there ain't no pill for this, is we kind of jumped to, oh, it's probably going to be in the gym. Okay. Um, there's a bigger assumption there that the op and this is something we I think we've stated this explicitly a couple of times, but it's becoming uh, ingrained into the structure of what we're saying now. It's this idea that the opposite side of medical services is the health and wellness industry, right? Like sick care, the present day sick care and the present day health and wellness industry kind of live on opposite ends of the same uh, set of tasks, right? You're sufficiently sick, you're a medical person you are sufficiently healthy, you're a health and wellness person. The health and wellness people are actively trying to not fall into the sick place. And the mm -hmm. sick folk are trying to get healthy such that they no longer qualify for sick care. And if they so wish, they can pursue greater capacity in the health and wellness space. Is that construct what we're going for right now? Yeah, so right now, the, the they are like neighbors across the street that uh, wave at each other as they come to and from, go to and from their homes for their daily activities. But rarely spend actually any time together. Interesting. Because that leads to an, uh, a very high level observation that in this theoretical system, right? We talk about like having a medical home, right? Uh, in, as mm -hmm. far as primary care, Medicare, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. There's this idea that once you escape the orbit, orbit of needing medical services, the next step is something like a physical culture. Like, a, I'm trying to think of a once upon a time, it's it an old black and white film of like, it was like the uh, the John F. Kennedy athletic something for high school. This is defunct. We don't do this anymore. But there was like these, it was this really cool black and white footage of a bunch of high school kids just doing calisthenics right. as part of their basic PE. And I was like looking at it like these kids are doing basically CrossFit as part of their gym class. And I'm like, this is amazing. And this was like a national standard to some capacity, at least the way the video framed it, it was a national standard. But there's this idea that in order to make a healthy, young, strapping population for war, because what do you care about in these videos? You know what I mean? There's this idea that if it is not enough to just be not sick, you must also be physically adept. And in doing so, they built it into the high school system in, you know, kind of gollywish quaint Americana. <laughs> Well, and I, I think this is a good place for us to pause the episode and uh, put a... Uh, uh, to be continued? 
uh, to be continued. Uh, I would like to spend the entire next episode talking about physical culture and how that can contribute. So what do you think? I'm going to get my strong segue? Sure. That's right. <laughs> I need to get one. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, let's pause there as, uh, and end where we're, what we're doing tonight. And uh, we can go on to talk about physical culture at the next episode. What do you think? I'm down for that. All right. Well, thank you for joining us with Roland Bones, the osteopathic podcast, as we do this long form technique and an approach. We're going to continue on this discussion on our journey to find uh, the, the healthcare nirvana. I say this isn't find it, fix it, leave it alone anymore. We kind of we're we're building a new dang thing now, right? <laughs> right. We're 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 not sure exactly how everything's going to look. But uh, we're going to build a, a new invention. How's that sound? There you go. We will find it. We will find it. 